Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Let's jump in tonight to the nature of providence. Tonight's lesson just simply called, Is God in Control? And it covered chapters 2 and 3 in your reading. So if you're reading leading up to the lessons, that's great. If you want to save the reading for after the lessons each week, that's good too. So this is in your book, chapters 2 and 3. And the big idea for tonight's lesson in those two chapters is this. God is in control. He has a purpose and a plan for you, and he has the power to carry out that plan. Okay, very simple things. God is in control. He has a plan and purpose for you, and he has the power to carry out that plan. So that, is, that brings us into this area of theology called the providence of God. And the first thing we need to hit on when we speak of God's providence are these two truths. God is both sovereign and good. And you're reading, uh, if, you're doing, if you're reading the book, there's the, the, the tidbits about Rabbi Kushner and his book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Uh, Jewish author, uh, rabbi, obviously. And uh, his take on things is that God is not always in control. And there are some things outside of God's hand and God's control. And things happen to us that God does not will or want to happen to us. And um, he says because the dilemma we face is either uh, when bad things happen, either God is not good, but he's powerful, or God is good, but he's not powerful enough to stop the bad things from happening. And Kushner sort of leans on that last one. He's good, but he's not powerful enough to stop everything bad from happening to us, though some things happen outside of his control. Well, the Bible teaches the exact opposite about God's providence and his power and his control, even in the bad things. And the Bible teaches us this tense truth, that God is in control of both the good and the bad. And really, it's not just an either-or, both thing. God controls all things at all times. The two mistakes we tend to make about God's providence, when we think about it, is um, we limit it maybe to good things, the good events that happened. And so when things line up the way they're supposed to in our minds, when we get the job or we get the interview, the promotion, the thing happens, uh, we get into the college we're supposed to, the career we want to, uh, when things kind of tend to line up the way we want them to, we say, well, that's God's providence. Uh, providentially, and it's usually followed by something good to happen. But when, you know, when's the last time you talked about something in God's providence that was bad? In God's providence, this so-and-so passed away, or in God's providence, I was sick or I came down with this, uh, this bit of pain or suffering or whatever it is, this trial, God controls not just the good things, and his providence is not just in the good things. His providence and his control and sovereignty is also in what we would call the bad things. And nothing is outside of his control or his power or his ultimate will. He controls all things at all times. The second mistake we tend to make with God's providence is that we think it means that he merely intervenes at times. 
So if the one mistake is um, that God is not powerful, God is not good, and it's only, or God is not powerful enough to stop the bad things, and his providence is only in the good things, the second mistake uh, is when we say that God has to step in and change something. Um, in other words, God has pretty much wound the universe and creation and our lives up um, like, a, like a clock, and he has stepped away and lets it, for the most part, just do what it's going to do, and at times has to step in and intervene or change or turn something back to his will when it gets out of hand. And so these are two mistakes we make with God's sovereignty. Contrast that with these two biblical truths. God controls both the good and the bad, and God controls all things at all times. The definition in the book um, from J.I. Packer that um, the author quotes on page 13 is helpful. Middle of page 13 if you have the book. The unceasing activity of the Creator whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for its own glory. Now, the author um, boiled that down to this simple quote here. God's providence is his constant care and absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Constant care, his overarching rule for his people, for his glory, and for their good. In the good times and the bad times. All things, at all times, for all people. This is the biblical definition of God's providence. Not just the good times, not just the bad times. Not just when God has to step in and, quote, change or turn something back to his will. No, it's all according to his will and his purpose and his plan and his control. Let's talk about two facets of God's providence. How about God's sustaining power? God sustains. He sustains creation. He sustains creation. Let's look at a few of these verses together. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Would someone volunteer to read that verse for us loudly? Hebrews 1, verse 3. Maria, go. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this is speaking of God's power and God's providence, obviously, but it's interesting here. Specifically, we're talking about Jesus and Jesus upholding all things, upholding, sustaining, holding together all things uh, by the word of his power, um, sustaining, holding together, putting together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, also about the Lord Jesus. Colossians 1, 17, would someone volunteer to read that for us loudly? Right, we're familiar with that one, aren't we? We quote it. Most of us have memorized that. When's the last time you thought about it? In terms of Jesus Christ's providence, God's providence over all things, holding all things 
together. In him, in him, all things hold together. In his very person, his very nature, as the I am, as life itself, God most high, the living God, all these names we've been looking at. In him, all things hold together. Uh, turn to the Psalms, Psalm, four, some, Psalm 147, sorry, Psalm 147. Someone read verses 8 through 9 for us loudly. All right. From the heavens and the clouds to rain for the earth to the grass that grows on the hills down to giving the animals their food, even down to the ravens, and of course Jesus' words from Matthew 10, down to the very sparrows, God's control and upholding power, sustaining all of creation in himself, holding it together, sustaining it, upholding it. It's not just creation, it is also you and me. You read these verses in your discussion questions as Paul was addressing the um, Grecians in Athens. He was quoting one of their prophets, or their poets, that said, and in him all things hold together. In him all things consist. In him we live and move and have our being. He was quoting one of their poets about a false god, but saying this is about the one true God, because in him we truly have our being and our life and our purpose and our identity, not just in creation and history and in those big things all around us that we say, oh, God is in control of those things, but down to you and me, that in him we also are held together and sustained and upheld. Not just believers either. That common grace that God gives all believers who live and move and have their being in him, believers and unbelievers alike, as made in the image of God, have their being and their life in God who sustains all things by the word of his very power. But not only does he sustain, he governs. God governs all things. It's not just that he holds things together, winds it up, steps back, and lets it go. He also governs what he is upholding and what he is sustaining. Uh, look at Second Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And verse 2. Someone volunteer to read that for us once you get there. Second Chronicles 29, verse 2. I might be wrong about this. I am wrong about this. That is the wrong verse. Let me double check myself here. Yeah, this is, that, that would make no sense to you if you read that. It's the Word of God. It's just not applicable for what we're talking about right now. <laughs> Let me make sure I'm doing the right thing here. Chapter... It's First Chronicles. My bad. And it's verse 12. First Chronicles 29, verse 12. Yeah. When someone gets to First Chronicles 29, verse 12... Please read that for us loudly. All right, so notice the both ends of this. In your hands are riches and honor, 
They come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. So God governs, never mind the scripture reference here, God governs all things. God governs all things. Next, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. Someone read that when you get there. Read it for us loudly. 1 Timothy 6, 15. All right, the only ruler, your version might say the only sovereign, the only authority, the only king. Not just king, but what? King of kings and Lord of lords. We say that all the time about Jesus and God, and and we know what we mean, kind of, but if we think about it, it goes all the way back to those Old Testament um, instances where God reveals himself through Daniel and through the people of Israel to Nebuchadnezzar and these pagan kings, and they realize it is God who raises up kings and kingdoms, and God who tears down kings and kingdoms. It is God who makes rich and poor, great and small. God is in control and sovereignly governs all things as the only ruler, the only sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords. God governs all things down to human actions. You don't have to turn here. You'll, you'll remember this reference from last week, Lamentations 3.37 Uh, That rhetorical question, who decrees and it comes to pass? Who sets the course for history and it happens? And of course, the prophet is pointing us to God, his sovereign power, who decrees all things as he upholds all things by the word of his power, also decreeing all things that come to pass by that same word of his power. And remember that scripture reference from Daniel chapter 4 also. That's that one I was just quoting Uh, where it is God who raises up and brings low. It's God who raises nations and brings down nations. It's God who is the one true and living God, sovereign over creation, sovereign over you and me, governing all things down to our very lives and our very actions. We say it this way. You don't have this in your handout. I had to make room. Nothing is left to randomness, luck, or chance. These are pagan concepts that Christians do not buy into. No, we shouldn't, biblically. Randomness, luck, and chance. We may not always understand God's ways, but He is sovereignly at work in all of our circumstances. There's that word all again. If we don't, forget, don't remember anything else tonight, that's the one we need to remember. All things, all people, all times. God is in control of all of it. The Christian worldview does not see anything as left up to blind fate or randomness or chance or luck or merely nature, but all things happen according to the sovereign command and the sovereign decree and the sovereign power of God. That's a very Christian-y theological word we keep throwing out, sovereignty, uh, God is sovereign, sovereignly. What do we mean by the sovereignty of God? The author says this, if there is a single event, a single event, down to the most microscopic, minuscule, millisecond, remember Sproul's cosmic space dust, if there's a single event in all the universe 
that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust Him. If God is not absolutely all-powerful in all places, all times, perfectly, for all people, for all things, for all creation, then we can't trust Him because how can someone who is not in control of all things make any promises and vow to keep them? How can we trust that He is faithful to do what He says if He is not sovereignly in control of history and people and creation and everything else? We can't. The biblical view of sovereignty speaks of God's absolute control. Remember the first week in our discussion questions, the first question was, who is in control or is God in control? And of course, we all say as Christians, yes, God is in control. But remember the next question of what? And we had some different answers, didn't we? We might still have some different answers. That's okay. We're figuring all this out together, hopefully. We'll never get to the the 100% correct answer, I don't think. But it's easy for us to say God is in control. But I think oftentimes what we mean by that is what we talked about earlier. God can step in. My battery is running low. That's always fun. God can step in and fix things. God can turn something around. But it's not necessarily God who's bringing everything to completion by his will and by his power all the time. I'm going to lower my brightness all the way down. The biblical view of God's sovereignty is absolute control. And number one, it means God does what he pleases. God does what he pleases. Number two, it means that God determines human actions. And to Javon's point earlier, God is not limited by our choices. Now, in our theology and the way we think, We limit God's sovereignty by, as we talked about, trying to take control for ourselves, as Abram did in Genesis and throughout the scriptures we see that. Trying to take control, trying to force something to happen, trying to do it ourselves, trying to rely on our own own understanding, our own plans, our, our own rule and authority, what we think is our own sovereignty. But God, who does all that he pleases, God who determines human actions, is not limited by our choices. In other words, the free choices that we make as free agents, bound by sin, but nevertheless making choices in that sinful nature, do not prohibit God from doing something that he otherwise would do. In other words, God doesn't will something to happen, and then because of our disobedience or our failures or our sin, somehow we keep that thing from happening. Or we bar God from doing what God wants to do. Theologians would say it like this. We cannot thwart God's will. We can't stop God from doing what God pleases to do. Because God's power supersedes our human actions and even our free will. This is good news for us whether we realize it or not. Because when it comes down to our salvation, we want this to be true, don't we? When it comes to our salvation, we want to know God is in control because we want to say like Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, I am convinced that God is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. And what's Paul talking about? His eternal life, his salvation, his inheritance, his eternal security as a believer, 
We want to count on God to be in control of all things at all times for all people because when it comes to our salvation, we want to say, I'm confident that God who saved me is going to complete the work that he started. And he is able to keep what I've committed to him until the day he returns and takes me home. And if there's one thing that God is not in control of, then we cannot trust him in that. He can't make that promise that he will keep us if he is not sovereign. He can't make that promise to preserve us to the end and to keep what we've committed to him unless he is in control of all things at all times for all people, even you and me, in all of life. In all of life. Let's look at a few more scriptures here and we'll, um, I won't make you turn anymore. Turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 16. A few of these are in Proverbs consecutively here, so we'll be in the same book. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Someone read that for us when you get there. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord Okay. Man, man thinks he's going to do what man's going to do. I make my choices. I chart my course. I set my path. But the book of wisdom here tells us it is the Lord who establishes his steps. And if the Lord does not establish such steps, those steps will not be taken. It is the Lord who establishes our steps before us, even though we think that we're in control of our own destiny. Uh, Proverbs 19, just one, uh, three chapters over to the right there, one page in my Bible. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Uh, someone read that for us. Many are the plans in our minds. Man makes a lot of plans, doesn't he? But it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand in the end. Sometimes, working at the same time. God's will, working through the plans of men. There goes the computer, it's okay. God's will, working through the plans of men. Working by the plans of men, even. Um... How about Proverbs 21? A couple chapters over to the right. Proverbs 21, verse 30. Okay, no wisdom of man, no counsel, no so-called understanding can prevail against the counsel of the Lord. That's another way of saying that nothing will thwart the plans of God. All right, over to everyone's favorite book, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I love Ecclesiastes. No one else seems to, but I'll preach through it one day. Ecclesiastes 7.13. We... Okay, we looked at this last week about God making crooked in the good and the bad. God is in control, making straight, making crooked. You don't have to turn here. You know James 4.15, talking about if the Lord wills. Uh, do not say, I will go and do this thing, or I will go and do that thing, but instead say, if the Lord wills, I will do this, or I will do that. And again, there, there are people who get superstitious about this and as if you shouldn't say that you're going to do anything unless you say if the Lord wills or Lord willing. And I say that sometimes too, but I don't think it's like a little magical thing we put on something to make it happen. 
Okay, and I don't think James intends for us to religiously sort of say this all the time. It's something to keep in our minds and our hearts and our spirits that as we plan and as we think for the future, the very next day, the very next moment, every time we wake up in the morning, we say, God, this is your creation. This is your universe. I am yours. Use me according to your will to accomplish your purposes. I'm going to make my plans. I'm going to do my stuff. But I know it's you who's establishing my footsteps. I know it's you who's establishing my path forward. And I submit all things to your sovereign control today. I think that's what James intends to say. Not to be in pride and arrogance and to say that we're going to do this our way in our time with our choices and our wills apart from God. But let us submit everything to his sovereignty, to his control. If the Lord wills, we will do such and such. The next heading here would have been the sovereignty of God works behind the scenes. And this quote from the book, No detail of your life is too insignificant for your heavenly Father's attention. No detail in your life is too insignificant for your heavenly Father's attention. No circumstance is so big that he cannot control it. So remember, I think it was last week we talked about trusting God with the big things in life and trusting God in those everyday mundane things in life on which is harder. And we kind of think everybody agreed it's harder to trust him in those small everyday things in life. Uh, a couple of us said the, the big things in life, but it doesn't matter. Whichever one we're talking about, God is in control of it. Nothing is so small that it does not warrant God's attention in our life. And nothing is too big that he is not in sovereign control of it in our life or in all of creation. Your next set of blanks, I think, is, is there. God's sovereignty isn't always apparent. God's sovereignty isn't always apparent. In other words, uh, the author pointed us to the book of Esther in the Bible. You know, the book of Esther is the only biblical book that does not mention the name of God. It's this story about Esther and Mordecai and King Xerxes and Haman and all these things that are happening. And, and, and we read it. And we as Christians, of course, are interpreting and reading it, whether we know it or not, through the lens of God's sovereignty. God putting Mordecai there. God raising up Esther for that, such a time as this. Remember that, that quote? But the word God, the name of God, is not mentioned at all. I think that's on purpose to point us to this, that we see even in what's going on before us, no one has to stand up and say, God is in control of all that's happening. But as we're reading... And as we see the action unfold and the story unfold and the Jewish people saved and Haman punished, we see God is in control. We see God's sovereignty. The same thing is true in each of our lives. You don't have to pray to wonder if God is in control of what's happening in your life. The big things that might be happening right now, the small things that might be happening right now. The big decisions, the small decisions, the everyday decisions, the down-the-road decisions. All of them right now are in God's sovereign hand of control and power and sovereignty. And not one thing is happening or has happened, not just outside of his knowledge, but outside of his sovereign will and command. It might not always be in your face visible. It might not always be in those times where everything clicks together the way you want it to, and you say, oh, thank God he's in control. It could be in those times when it feels like, He's not in control. When it feels like everything's falling apart and not snapping together. 
that you still say God is sovereign. God is in control. Number two, God is constantly watching over you. We sing about this whole concept when we're children. It's a comforting concept for children sometimes. I remember the first time I used the term Holy Ghost with my daughter Anna. And at bedtime, she didn't like that um, because it always said Holy Spirit. And then one night I changed it up and said Holy Ghost. And she's like, what's that? (laughs) What's that? He's here. He's in the room right now. Uh, (laughs) It's comforting to, to most children. And when we grow up, however, it seems like we kind of abandon that concept that God is watching over us. And we get into weird things if we do agree with that, with guardian angels and all that, that stuff that happens. But uh, God himself is constantly watching over us. I didn't mean to disparage the idea of guardian angels. That may very well be a thing. May. May. Okay. People get weird about it is what I'm saying. It's not a weird concept, but people get weird about it like most things in the Bible. God is constantly watching over you. Um, All through the Psalms, we see that in the life of David, don't we? God is preserving him. God is protecting him. And even when the bad things happen, uh, David is crying out to God, why did this happen? Why did you make this happen? And then he trusts in God, uh, even in the midst of his circumstances. Number three, he's watching over you and he's planning all things for your good. For your good. Romans 8, 28. Every week we might quote this verse. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I always back this up with verse 29 because if we leave it at verse 28, people interpret it to mean anything. Verse 29 tells us what our good is, doesn't it? He predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son, into the image of Christ. And that made me think of Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, you know the rest, that God has already prepared for us to walk in. We make our plans, the Lord establishes our steps. God has already set forth the good works for us to walk in in holiness as we're being conformed into the image of Christ. And so although God's sovereignty and providence isn't always right there in front of us as if someone was putting it on the banner for us in all of life's circumstances, it is nevertheless there. He is nevertheless watching over us and guiding us and establishing our footsteps for our good, for his glory, that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in these good works in Christ. That leads us to this next series of nevers. God is never surprised. There's never a moment when something happens, anything happens, that God is surprised, that God learned something new, that something happened outside of his control or his plan, the old clockmaker thing again, and he has to step in and fix it because this didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen. God is never caught off guard. That might sound like the same thing as surprised, but that, that, that has a connotation of God watching and being alert to what's happening, and and nothing happens without God's observance and his alertness in all things. Number three, God is never frustrated. Now, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and we do grieve the heart of God with sin, wickedness, and evil, and those things frustrate God in terms of that emotion of frustration, grieving, being mad and angry at sin. This means frustrating his will to thwart, to stop, 
to somehow change God's mind or change God's will. In that way, God, I should have said God's will is never frustrated. His plan is never frustrated. Number four, God never makes a mistake. Nothing has ever happened according to God's decree that God then says, oops, I didn't mean to do that. I shouldn't have done it that way. Let me go back and change that. And this is true in the good and the bad. Again, back to the beginning. Whether it's the good and the straight, the bad, the crooked, it is God who has ordained it all. If you want to jot down Acts chapter 12, this is a, Acts is a wonderful book for a lot of these doctrines. It's, it's in narrative, it's in history, and again, it's not right there in front of your face, but you see it play out. And in Acts chapter 12, you see it played out in the lives of two apostles. Both apostles, uh, James, Peter, are in prison. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, sorry, and then Peter, the apostle, they're in prison. And um, Peter is released miraculously. Prayers are answered. Peter goes free. What happens to James? He's killed. And when you look at... (laughs) Thank you for the sound effect. (laughs) I don't know if it sounded like that. More like a chop, I think, you know. We look at this, and, 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 and the, the verses come and go with no commentary. There's nothing in there that says, now, this shows us about God's sovereignty with Peter and James. It doesn't say that. What it does say is that this happened to Peter, this happened to James. Peter was released, James is killed. It was James the Apostle, sorry, Peter and James the Apostle. And um, God is in control of both, and God willed both. If God had willed to free James, he would have been freed, right? None of Herod's men or his prisons could have stopped him. We saw that in the life of Paul. God can tear down prisons. He can cause earthquakes and set prisoners free. He did it for Peter. Why not James? And we're left with that tension. God's will, God's sovereignty, God's providence in the life of both. The crooked, the straight... Isaiah says that the Lord says, I create good and I create calamity. Lamentations 3.37 again, what happens and the Lord does not decree it. I don't mean to say any of these things, and the author goes, goes here at the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 3, as if to sort of flippantly say, well, God is in control. So, you know, if you're going through something in your life or your friend or someone is going through something terrible, there's pain, there's anguish, there's anxiety and fear, chaos, confusion, hopelessness, helplessness, all that stuff. And, and we as Christians just say, well, God is sovereign. He's in control. You know, sorry. <laughs> sorry about you, but that's the way it is. Uh, that's not the heart of God in Scripture. And it shouldn't be our heart when dealing with people, even within this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Okay, Paul is clear, the Bible is clear, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus wept there at the tomb of Lazarus. In sovereign control of all things, Jesus still pitied his friends, he still pitied Lazarus. Knowing what was going to happen, he still pitied him and wept for him. They said to Jesus, uh, look how this man loved him. Uh, That should be modeled in our lives as well. Guide people gently through these ideas of the doctrines of the sovereignty and the providence of God. When bad things are happening and someone says, oh, why is this happening? You're a Christian. You read the Bible. You go to church. Why is this happening to me? And we say, 
don't know. God's in control. <laughs> See you later. No. We say, I, I can't give you an answer to that. What I can tell you is that God is in control and God is good. And you can point them to the Lord Jesus. Time and time again, point them to Jesus. God's son. God's only son. God's loved son. Whom he sent to earth to die and to suffer. Point them to the apostles. These cornerstones of the church. These foundation rocks of the church. And how they were martyred. Point them to the early church. Point them to Christians throughout history who have suffered for the cause of Christ. And say, this is God's will. This is God's plan. Did he not love his son Jesus? Did he not love the apostle Paul and Peter and James and John and the rest? Of course he did. He loves you. And in the middle of your suffering and your trials and your circumstances, he intends for this to bring him glory. And you can either submit to that or not. But either way, he is Lord and he is sovereign and he will get the glory that he is due. The last section there is on trusting God. And when it comes to those hard times and those hard circumstances, we need to remember a few things. Trusting God is, number one, not a matter of feelings. It's not a matter of feelings. You may feel at some times when everything is happening the way that you want it to that God is in control. And it's easy to say it then. Oh, God is good. God is faithful. Praise the Lord. And, and there's something about that that should happen because we want to give God gratitude and praise for the good things he does. Okay, I'm not saying don't do that. But also remember what Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And whether he gives or takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not a matter of how I feel in a particular situation. God is sovereign and he's in control regardless of what I'm feeling. Number two, it's not a matter of circumstances. It's not a matter of what's going on around us or within us or around us in our lives, lives of our family or friends or loved ones. God is in control of all things regardless of our circumstances. Um, I'll get to that quote in a minute. Number three, trusting God is a matter of the will based on truth. This is why theology is such a big deal. This is why Bible study is such a big deal, why preaching is such a big deal. Because you want, as Jesus said, to build your house on a solid rock. So when the storms come and the wind beats against the house and the waves beat against the house, it won't just collapse like the house that was built on the sand. And I always thought it was interesting that Jesus talked about the foundation that the houses are built on, not the material of the houses themselves. He didn't talk about the structure of the house. Make sure you build your house well. Didn't know there's wisdom in these things, of course, with your life, your salvation, or a real house. <laughs> there's, there's wisdom in this. Design it well, build it well, architecture, this thing, physics, all that stuff. Jesus didn't say that, did he? When it comes to faith, and trusting God, it is not about me or my house 
my family, my things, my feelings, my circumstances, my suffering, my whatever it is. When it comes to trusting God, it is not the material of the house, it's the substance of the foundation. And that substance must be truth. The anchor must be set in truth. Because when the wind blows, when the waves roll in, when the storms come, that's the only anchor that's going to hold. That's the only foundation that's going to last. The foundation of truth. So not your feelings, not your circumstances, but your will to choose to trust God based on what you know. I, I love this clip of uh, Alistair Begg, one of my, my, probably my favorite preacher, uh, talking about worship. And he says he was in this big church and there was a big countdown on the screen and um, the band was about to play. And, you know, you've been in one of these churches. We, we, we have a countdown, but it's not like this. And <laughs> the thing gets to zero and the drummer, click, 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 do, 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 you know something. He says David Letterman was about to come out. And so the worship leader comes out and he says this was like his opening line to the congregation on the Lord's Day for worship. Uh, hey, how do y'all feel? And, of course, beg and just beg fashion, just rips it apart. Like, what kind of question is that for Christians? How do you feel? And he said, I feel, I feel terrible. He said, I had a fight with my wife. I had a fight with my kids. I, I kicked the dog. I was angry. I was cussing on the way to church. You ask me how I feel. I feel terrible. He says, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know to be true about God and his goodness and his sovereignty and the gospel. And that's what we need to remind ourselves of all the time, not just in a worship service, but in all of life's circumstances, not my feelings and not my particular circumstances in a moment, but what do I know to be true about God and his word and the gospel. Page 43 of the book, I'll leave you with this uh, quote tonight. Page 43, um, the last of that paragraph before the word of caution. We honor God by choosing to trust Him when we don't understand what He is doing or why He has allowed some adverse circumstance to occur. As we seek God's glory, we may be sure that He has purposed our good and that He will not be frustrated in fulfilling that purpose. As we seek God's glory, we may be sure that he has, he has purposed our good and that he will not be frustrated in fulfilling that purpose to what? To make us like Jesus, to conform us to his image and to bring us all the way home to him in the end. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for your providence. Thank you for your sovereignty that we can trust you in all things at all times, the big things, the little things, the good things, the bad things. We can trust you. We can submit those things to you because you are God. You're the only ruler. You're the sovereign one. You're King of kings and Lord of lords. God, help us to trust you all the more. Help us to trust and obey and help us to follow you and help us to devote our lives every day to trusting you and bringing glory to you. God, when things are bad, things are going wrong, in our estimation, remind us that you're working even then, that you don't stop working, that your will is not frustrated, you are not turned away from us, but you are there working in and even through and even by 
those bad things to make us more like Jesus. And your gospel will advance in all things. And you will build your church at all times. God, help us to trust you. Help us to love you. And help us every day to live for your glory and your honor and your fame. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.